you'll stand with me again and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19. I'm going to begin reading with verse number 28. After this, and it's, I believe the after this is a reference to putting his mother into John's care, and then we read after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, said, and then in parentheses here, to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. But it says He said it to fulfill Scripture. I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. And, they, and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out water, blood and water. He who saw it, John, has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may believe, also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again another Scripture says, and they will look on him whom they have pierced. You may be seated. We considered the crucifixion of Christ here in this passage in John and last week we were in verses 19 through 27 and there we explained that the Romans carried out the will of the Jews which was actually the will of God had it been the will of the if the Jews got their way they would have, have stoned him to death but the scriptures require Jesus Christ to be crucified and so we read there in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you Jews crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, Romans. Jesus must be crucified. And we, read, we know that from Genesis 3.15. His heel is bruised. He, his heel was definitely bruised being crucified on a cross. His heel was bruised that Satan's head may be crushed. And also in Psalm 22, where, he, where we find so many references to His suffering on the cross. And then we observe the care by which the Sovereign Lord intended every detail of the crucifixion to bring about the redemption of His people. So we read there in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 to 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering, offspring. In other words, he's dying so a people might be born again and live forever. He died that his people may live. He makes his soul an offering for guilt. So then he will see his offspring who have been freed from sin and from wrath. He shall prolong his days through the resurrection. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Isn't that wonderful? And he shall bear their iniquities. That's why we're righteous, because he bore our iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the uh, transgressors, and yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus was fully in charge of every detail of his execution and was fully aware of all that was happening around him. And in the midst of this awful suffering, he had compassion on those that were closest to him. Can you imagine that? He's suffering a horrendous and torturous hanging on that cross, and yet his mind and his heart go out to those who are standing by, and even to his mother and the others. Yet, and particularly his mother. He waited. She waited near, no doubt, the words of Simeon back when they brought the infant Jesus to the temple for the dedication. There in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, we read, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that shall that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. I imagine she thought about that as she stood there and watched her son dying on that cross, the sword piercing through her own soul. Why? So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Did you know Mary, the name Mary means bitterness. It comes from Mara. My wife's family, there were three Maras. Mary, Margaret, and Marilyn. They're all bitter women. <laughs> bitterness. Jesus placed her in the care of John, most likely a relative. This is this is an interesting study for me because I didn't I did not realize that that uh, Jesus was probably uh, John, that is the author of the gospel here, was probably a cousin of Jesus. So 
Mary's sister. And I think that may be explain why we read there in John's Gospel where he refers to himself as that disciple whom Jesus loved. I think he was young. I think he was probably probably in his teen years when this takes place. And it's his mother, or it's his mother's sister who comes to Jesus and says, when you come into your kingdom, let my let uh, your two cousins here sit on your right left and your right hands. James and John. So Je- so it's this John who now takes Jesus home, uh, Jesus' mother home, and cares for her. But it's but it's also interesting that we don't read anything of his brothers, her of of Jesus' brothers. Like apparently they are not yet uh, fully believing in Jesus and probably won't will not be till till the resurrection. So Jesus John then takes Mary home and immediately I think returned then to the cross. He took her to his home and then he came back because we know this because he who saw this bore witness and his testimony is true. He said I I saw it with my own eyes. And what I'm writing here to you, I'm an eyewitness of this account. There in verse 35. A.W. Pink notes that Mary's marvelous fortitude. She suffered in unbroken silence while the crowds mocked, the thieves taunted, and the soldiers callously diverted their attention to their selfish dividing of his clothing. His disciples deserted him. His friends forsook him. His nation despised him. But his mother was there, near the cross, where all might see her. That was a mother's heart. The crucifixion ended Jesus' natural tie to his mother. And this is, I think, a tremendous thing. He refers to her as woman. And if you'll recall, the first time you find Jesus referring to his mother as woman, it was back in the second chapter when she apparently had something to do with the wedding at Cana of Galilee and they found themselves out of wine. And so she comes to her son and says, they, they don't have any more wine. And Jesus responds to her, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Notice, my hour has not yet come. So now we read that the hour has come. It's there. And at the cross, her status was officially altered. And I think that's why he said to her, Woman, behold your son. Not mother, woman. It's not, it was, it was a statement neither uh, demeaning or, or disrespectful. But it, it said there is no longer any, no, no longer this physical, personal relationship which you have with me as mother and son. And I think it describes what Paul talks about there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. From now on, Paul wrote, Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him no, thus no longer. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. She, like all believers, entered into a spiritual relationship that transcends earthly ones. And this changed in spite of a Romanist error, I think, which is clear here that after the resurrection, Mary finds her place among the disciples, not over them. He didn't pray to her. But she joined them in prayer to God. According to Acts chapter 1 verse 14. On another occasion, Jesus replied to one informing him that his mother and his brothers were looking for him. And I think this is where he sets the tone of all of this in Mark chapter 3 verses 33 to 35. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. And looking around at those who were sitting at his feet listening to him. He said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. See, there's a new relationship here. Spiritual relationships supersede all others. To be chosen a follower of, of the Savior is to be treasured more than any earthly relationship, including those of a family. Then, thirdly here, by way of introduction, I'm still in my introduction. The Gospels are not biographical accounts. There's one focus of the Gospels, and that's the suffering of Jesus Christ. Many Gospels have one thing and leave out other things. Some things have things unique to others. Some things have things that we, we think, well, this is a conflict, and I can't quite figure out how this fits with that. But I can tell you one thing, every one of them deal with the suffering of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Matthew presents Jesus as Messiah, the son of David, the king of Israel. Mark focuses on the servant of Yahweh doing the will of his master as cited there in the book of uh, Isaiah. Servant of the Lord. Luke depicts Jesus as the son of man showing his human perfections. Luke is writing mainly to a Gentile crowd. John, on the other hand, reveals Jesus as the Son of God incarnate, the Word made flesh and tabernacling among men. John 1.18 John focuses on the divine glories and the <clears throat> dignity and majesty of, Je of His person. One would never expect to find such majesty in His dying. But John puts it there. Particularly dying on a cross. And for instance, John does not mention Jesus' agony in Gethsemane. But he does tell us that when the soldiers came, he asked them, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And they all fell backward onto the ground. Why? They were under the arresting power of his words causing this, this uh, uh, supernatural 
event. John omits Jesus' painful cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he gives, which is unique to, him, to God, John, his victorious shout, and he shouted it from the, from the cross. He cried out with a loud voice, as Mark tells us. It is finished. Mark doesn't say what he said. John does. And John also hones in on the details which prove prophecy fulfilled. Over and over again, he references prophecy. And then three times here in this chapter, John notes something occurred which fulfilled Scripture. These observations are evident proofs for the verbal inspiration of the Scripture. And they demonstrate that Jesus was fully in charge of every detail of his dying. Nothing happened to him by chance. Then in this message, we want to consider two things. But first, note here one. When did Jesus die? Was Jesus crucified on Good Friday? Good Friday? Uh, and the answer is no. I don't think so. I don't think it was Friday. Uh, the, the mistake, I think, is due to the fact that the Scripture says it was the Sabbath. But notice John also says this Sabbath was a high day, which means it was not a normal Sabbath. This Sabbath was a high day. It was the Passover. And we had two Sabbaths back to back. The Sabbath of the Passover and then the regular Sabbath, which fell on Friday. That's why the women couldn't go to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus and had to wait clear till Sunday morning to go there. It was the day of preparation. Verse 42 says, the Jewish day of preparation for the Passover. Jesus died on preparation. That is the afternoon when the animals were, were, were sacrificed. Jesus was crucified on the afternoon that the animals were sacrificed to to serve that evening in the Passover meal. This approaching Passover, as I said, was also a, a Sabbath, and so it, it, was, it overruled the normal procedure which God prescribed through Moses. In Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, we read these words. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. See, that Jesus dying on the cross was a way of letting everybody know that he was cursed of God because he bore the iniquity of his people. So if you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. But you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Isn't that interesting? You can't, you can't, uh, you can't leave him up there all night. So Jesus, Jesus was crucified on preparation for Passover, where lambs were slain. So we read there in First Corinthians five, seven, and eight: Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of the sincerity and truth. And notice we have bread at the table. The law forbade his body to remain on the cross when Passover began that evening. But also because God said no criminal was to remain after sundown on the tree. You take him down. You bury him. And then Jesus stated there in Matthew 12, 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Good Friday model doesn't account for three days and three nights. If he died on Friday, you can't get three days and three nights to Sunday morning. But you can with Thursday. See? Then Matthew adds an important observation that supports the view. It says the next day, Friday, that is the day that is after after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Now here if it was a regular Sabbath, they couldn't do that. They had to wait till Sunday. But they go the next day after the crucifixion and ask that there be a guard put at his tomb because they said uh, that imposter said that while he was alive after three days I will rise therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Matthew 27, 62-64 John's eyewitness then becomes important when one understands the error of docetism. And that's another thing that that we don't normally understand. Remember, John wrote his gospel late in the first century with the rise of uh, some very serious errors. And docetism is one of them. and, And I really believe that's why his gospel, he says a number of things in his gospel. For example, he who saw it has borne witness and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may believe. He's witnessing against this false gospel. And he, and, uh, he began even his gospel with this uh, attesting the verity. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now what did docetism teach? It taught. It comes from the Greek word doeo, uh, dokeo, excuse me, which means it appears. It appears. In other words, Jesus only appeared to be human. To he only appeared to have flesh. He only appeared to be a physical and tangible being. Therefore, if Jesus was only a spirit, he did not really die because spirits don't die. Two things then in John's text counter the error. First, John notes that Jesus cried, I thirst. Spirits don't get thirsty, but physical bodies do. He had real physical needs. And then the only one who is truly human uh, suffers thirst. And second of all, when he was pierced, 
He was pierced in the side. Blood and water flowed from the wound. Only flesh bleeds. Now, let me get into the message itself, and that's going to be much shorter. First of all, Jesus surrendered his life. There's two things that I want to emphasize. Jesus surrendered his life, and then the proof that he was actually crucified, and he died. We read after this, placing Mary into John's care, Jesus, knowing that all things were now finished, tell you. The Greek word tell you. Jesus said, I thirst. This expressed Jesus' physical need after six hours of suffering under the wrath of God. Six hours hanging on a cross would not would would have been awful. But it would not have brought him to the place of death yet. And I'm going to show you that. When Jesus said, I thirst, he's telling us, you don't know what I have now suffered for six hours. And it had nothing to do with the nails in his hand or the sun beating down upon him, or the shame of his humiliation, or the beatings that he had taken, flogging of his back, it was the wrath of God that was poured out upon him. Without measure. Because he was fully satisfying divine justice and completing the work that God gave him to do, according to John 17, verse 4. I, have, I glorified you on earth, this is his high priestly prayer. He's praying that in, in the past tense because in his mind it's a done deal. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished. And it's the same, the same word that's used there. It is finished. Tell you. Translated there, finished. The work that you gave me to do. This term means to complete and accomplish a task designed. The word from the cross, I thirst, was to fulfill scripture. But this is a different word, to fulfill peru, scripture. And that's verse uh, Psalm 69, verse 21. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And this confirms Christ's perfect submission. He suffered in order that the smitten rock in the wilderness, that from that smitten rock in the wilderness, his own might drink the water of life. And this brings me to, uh, to uh, remember the incident recorded in, in chapter 4 where Jesus sat on the well curb of Jacob's well in Sychar of Samaria. He was waiting for a woman there to come and draw water. And when she arrived, he asked her for a drink. And to, the, to her surprise and, uh, and in, in a sense protest, Jesus answered her by stating, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. Amen. That's John 4 and verse 10. Now, he becomes thirsty in order to satisfy the spiritual thirst of others, fulfilling the promise that he made to that woman at the well. And we also need to note that there was two occasions in the Gospels here where he is offered drink. And some have argued that 
that's, that, that these contradict each other. And I say, no, no, they did not. We, we see them both in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verse 34, that's where the first mention is made, where the soldiers offered to the crucified men sour wine, vinegar, mixed with gall. Jesus refused it. And the reason he refused it was because of the gall that was in the drink. The gall would have dulled the pain of their suffering. Jesus needed to experience the full brunt of the wrath of God. But later in, in uh, uh, verse 48 of Matthew 27, he was offered only vinegar, which he took to fulfill Scripture. They get, they, for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Here in Psalm 69, verse 20, 21. Note also in John's account that they used hyssop to bring the, the wine, the, the sponge, wine sponge to his lips, to his mouth. And I think this too is a reference to the Passover. Exodus 12, verse 22 says, Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood in the basin and touch the lintel and the doorpost with the blood. Of the basin, Matthew, or excuse me, A. W. Pink also states here: He thirsted on the cross that we might drink the water of life and thirst no more forever. And then Jesus' last conscious determination was to drink the full cup of the wrath of God. And as I pointed out at the table there, he rebuked Peter there at and at the arrest for for seeking to defend him from the arresting party shall i not drink the cup that the father has given me john 18 verse 11 this when he finished the vi the vinegar he cries out and he he cried out with a loud voice it is finished the law was fulfilled second of all Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Thus, after he received the vinegar, he cried, It is finished. And the Greek word here translated again is you. Now he knew that it was done. All that the penalty of the law of God required, all that the redemptive promise fulfilled, uh, the uh, uh, promised Prophecy was predicted, all that the types foreshadowed, all that was needed for the salvation of his people was accomplished, finished. The Greek term, actually the, the Greek word he spoke out is the verb form, tetelestai, tetelestai, which means it is finished. One word. One word, tetelestai. And it was used in financial transactions to indicate that account was paid in full. His was not the despairing cry of a hopeless martyr. It was the triumphal cry of a warrior victorious in battle. Jesus settled the sin account of every one of those given him from the foundation of the world. The commentary of James Fawcett Brown says, 
what was what is finished? The law is finished as never before and or since. In his obedience unto death, even the death of the cross, the Messiah prophesied. Mess, excuse me, messianic prophecy is accomplished. Redemption is completed. He hath finished the transgression and made reconciliation for iniquity and brought in forever last brought in everlasting righteousness and sealed up the vision and the prophecy and anointed the the holy of holies he his he has inaugurated the kingdom of god and given birth to a new world amen jesus and then jesus handed over his own spirit to the father jesus did not die from his sufferings he was not executed. His life was not taken from him. He voluntarily surrendered it to the Father. Just as he stated, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No man takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. John 10, 17 and 18. In normal course of dying, one spirit departs. Then one that causes one to bow his head. But we read here, he bowed his head and yielded up the Spirit. He did it. And so that, I think, provoked the centurion to declare, truly, this was the Son of God. Matthew twenty-five, fifty-four. What was the alternative? God promises the one who rejects the worship of God to, to worship the beast and to receive his mark, that is ownership and loyalty, which is happening in the, all around us today. People are giving up Jesus Christ for the beast. Rather have the beast, rather have comfort, rather have my, my own wants, my own will. And those people will drink the wine of, the, of God's wrath poured full poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Revelation 14.10 The Lamb of God drank the full strength of the wine of God's wrath from the cup of his anger. He did in six hours what could never be satisfied. Even in eternity... By Christ rejecting sinners. They themselves will be forced to drink. His wrath. Forever. Which cup do you want? So what was the proof of his death? And there's two quick things here. The first is the timing of the Savior's death. Was divinely monitored to fulfill the promise of the resurrection in three days. This, to me, is, an, is very interesting. Everything in this passage tells us God was in full control. Absolutely full control. First of all, as noted earlier, it was the day of preparation. And on top of that, the bodies of those executed were forbidden by God to remain on the tree overnight. Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. 
So the Jews then go to Pilate and ask that the crucified criminals be removed before evening since it was a Sabbath day. It was the high, high Sabbath day. The problem was, however, crucifixion was a form of torture in which the victims often suffered for days, not just hours. From days. It, only, there, there are six hours of suffering were insufficient to bring about their deaths. Thus, in order to hasten their deaths, the Jews requested that their legs be broken. That way they could not they could no longer pull themselves up to breathe. And they, they would then suffocate. An interesting fact which is often ignored here is that Jesus knew that those who were were crucified with him would also be dead that day. Because he said to the thief, the repentant thief, this day you will be with me in paradise. Here again, the overruling of God is evident. In normal instances, Pilate would have insisted that Jesus' body remain on the cross for several days, even when he was dead. But God's plan overruled him so that he would be in the grave before sundown to await his resurrection three days later. He must be buried the same day he died. Not one word of his failed even when it would appear he was not in control. The timing of the Savior's death was divinely monitored by what was not done to him. And here again, this is, we see that how the scriptures are fulfilled. His legs were not broken. He was God's Passover lamb and according to the instructions, no bone was to be broken. Exodus chapter 12 verse 46 says, You shall not break any of its bones. The Passover lamb. Numbers 9 and 12, nor break any of its bones according to all the statute for the Passover. They shall keep it. Wow. Jesus should not have died only after three hours is also testified by the fact that Pilate was surprised when the soldiers told him that he was already dead. That's Mark chapter 15, verse 44. The soldiers needed to confirm his death. And they found Jesus dead already. So they didn't break his legs. He did the one on the one side, the one on the other side, but not Jesus. And it's interesting here that one of the errors that has come is that Jesus only swooned that when he was buried... He, he revived and, be, and came alive. And that uh, he, he wasn't really resurrected. The problem is, Roman soldiers are there to witness against them. They're infidels. Then the timing of the Savior's death was divinely monitored by what was done to Christ. He was pierced. When they didn't break his bones, they took a spear point and poked it into his side. That was 
Also, to fulfill scriptures, they will look on him whom they pierced. Blood and water flowed out. That was a miracle. It was this fact that the soldiers claimed truly this was the Son of God. But notice that Jesus does not receive witness from men. It was God who bore witness to the water and the blood. 1 John chapter six, 5, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Augustine observed, Behold now the sleeping last Adam, and out of his side formed the evangelical Eve. I thought that was interesting. Just like Adam was put to sleep and Eve taken from his side, so the second Adam falls to sleep in death, and from his side comes the evangelical Eve, the bride of Christ. Behold the rock which was smitten and the waters of life gushed forth. Behold the fountain opened for sin and uncleanness. Matthew Henry also comments, the blood and the water signify two great benefits which all believers partake through Christ, justification and sanctification. Blood stands for atonement, water for purification. The two always go together. Thus the scripture is fulfilled. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Psalm 34 verse 20. And Zechariah 12 verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the house of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they, will, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child weeping bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. So what are the lessons? Three things, just quickly. First, the death of Christ is the salvation of his people. When Jesus died on the cross, your salvation was sealed. Jesus did not die merely to make men savable. He saved them in his death. Secondly, the scriptures are, are important and essential in every detail of Christ's mission. It is also of supreme importance to, to the follower of Christ. Ignorance of scripture is a grievous error in the lives of many saints. And that omission is often by thoughtless neglect. Are you in the scriptures every day? Reading them, studying them, meditating upon them. Then thirdly, when, when Scripture and grace of, and the grace of God work in a believer, timid hearts are transformed into fearless and bold witnesses for Christ and the Gospel. Has your life thus been transformed? Father, thank you for the Word. Thank you for the opportunity to consider it together this morning. And I pray, God, your blessing upon our time now to follow. Lord, thank you. Thank you that Jesus went to the cross and drank the cup of God's wrath so that we may never have to drink it forever. 
We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.